So um, my name is Scott Drennan, and as Richard said, I'm the Director of Innovation at Bell. The innovation team at Bell is an advanced concepts team, an advanced technologies team that we formulated about a year and a half ago now. Consists uh, right now about 42 engineers and our support groups. And uh, we are very interested in autonomy and unmanned aerial vehicles. I'd like to start the conversation around uh, missions. And um, when we think about missions, we start off by playing a little bit of a game called COEX. And if you can fill in the X for something that you want an unmanned aerial vehicle to do, then you can start to formulate the mission in your mind. Um, so could, you, could it be a co-soldier, a co-worker, a companion? And uh, when you get to some of those major uh, subcategories that you think you're interested in these vehicles doing for you, you can quickly formulate a customer set, personal, military, commercial, and then if you bore down a little further, you can start to come up with maybe even market segments that not only apply just to those singular uh, military, commercial, or personal customers, but also do crossovers. So I've tried to list some of the crossovers there. I think everyone here probably knows we're in a collaborative uh, relationship with Uber, looking at uh, air taxis, um, ultimately an un unmanned or unpiloted vehicle, um, deliveries, job tools, so the crossover between personal use of these vehicles and commercial use. Also, between military and commercial as well, logistics is a big, a big piece as well as personnel, but there's also uh, surveillance customers out there on the military and commercial side too. And then between the military and personal, well, what about these micro UASs that want to be soldier-borne sensors? What about uh, the dedicated wingman, the faithful wingman that goes with larger vehicles uh, that can accompany folks out on missions? So a couple uh, pictures to illustrate those. I think people know that uh, UASs are becoming a part of platoons now, uh, from the soldier-borne sensor to small logistics vehicles. So we imagine uh, a lot of use in that area. Also, we ask ourselves the question, what can our legacy fleet do? So a 525, for example, squarely in a commercial space, unless we come up with military variants, can it serve as an unmanned platform as well and start to protect pilots from dumb, dirty, dangerous, or dull missions of, of say, bringing out equipment to the rig instead of bringing out people. Maybe one day when it's the workers, there's a pilot on board. One day when it's just the equipment for a repair action that has to take place, the aircraft goes out by itself. And then, of course, the, a pure military um, application, either, you know, in, let's call it the ISR configuration, or uh, in this case, we're also looking at it for, for the MUX mission that's out there. This is the V-247 Vigilant that we're currently working on. It's an it's a autonomous or unmanned tilt rotor. Uh, I think you're familiar with uh, Bell's interest in tilt rotors and the, and the combined uh, capabilities that they give in VTOL and also uh, in, in some decent range. Sometimes I do this one first. I, I chose to do the mission one first this time, but we, we move into then defining autonomy and what it means for, for Bell. And really it starts with fly-by-wire and then it goes all the way to completely unpiloted autonomous vehicles and things in between like optionally piloted vehicles or remotely piloted vehicles. So um, we, we like to do that because we're 
pretty good at fly-by-wire in the VTOL space, uh, V22 initially on the 609 and now on the 525. And when you think about fly-by-wire, it's that first move of taking some of the tasks away from the pilots. So as you just progress that evolution, you get all the way to a pilotless aircraft eventually. So inside this defining autonomy spectrum or space, you can see there's a, there's, sometimes there's a human in the loop, sometimes it's a manned platform, sometimes it's an unmanned platform. And again, these, these interactive mixes between these three categories. So in a manned platform where there's a person in the loop, you want interactive, informative interfaces like the newest cockpits that you see out there, but uh, it then evolves into, well, human-unmanned platform relationships is, you think, well, they're not involved, but they often are. Could you have uh, AR or haptic controls or even automated behaviors that start to take the place of the behaviors of the human pilot? And then between manned platforms and unmanned platforms, do you start to cooperate and, and create those those man-unmanned teams? Do you create swarms uh, of vehicles that are unmanned that operate with manned vehicles as well? And uh, I think you get a lot of interesting opportunities to find when you think about autonomy along a spectrum, um, the relationship between these three uh, satellite uh, topics, and then back to that notion of find your mission by filling in the X and, and, and determining where you're going to be there. So a couple of examples here in the V280 Valor, uh, an aircraft that we ultimately want to be optionally piloted, although it is not now. You see a cockpit that's interactive, um, has a very nice interface, large, large screen, and it's kind of embracing the next, right? And it's that, it was that upper left-hand corner that we talked about um, for you know, providing information in the most efficient way. If you embrace the future, and uh, we showed this last year at HAI in our technology uh, demonstration mock-up, the FCX-1, where you could have a pilot who's interacting with augmented reality and controlling the aircraft through screens that they see in their, in their goggles rather than from the traditional controls, perhaps traditional controls there for some more advanced maneuvers or even emergency situations. And then uh, coming back around that, that first circle, these, these man-unmanned teams of, of major uh, platforms performing some of the larger parts of the mission, and then uh, knowledge, awareness of the others that are around them, and even cooperative operations that can occur between them. So to get in a little more to how we look at the, the autonomy piece itself, I'll start off with a, a slide on, on AI and some of the background technology domains that we think about. And this again, it's, it's a progression from you know, hardwire actions between a stick and a rotor head and a, and a pilot, all the way up to rule-based decisions, perhaps behavioral-based decisions as AI continues to mature and is applied to these kinds of vehicles. And then asking ourselves questions like, could we discover things from those, those uh, AI machines that are out and about doing what they need to do? Right now, we look at AI and it's very pattern-based, um, and, and that's good, but oftentimes with either commercial or military missions, it's the non-pattern, the contingency that you have to deal with, and you hope to get an AI system in there that can do that because those are some of the most valuable actions that the human pilot makes 
day to day in a commercial mission. Oh, the landing, uh, the landing area is no good. We got to go around find another one. Military action. Well, we thought there was only going to be one of those bad things there. Now there's six. What do I do about it? So that's what we're looking to get past that pattern-based action into a more behavioral-based action. These are some of the um, architectures that we kind of lay that idea on top of. So if you start here with a, an aircraft system, call it traditional because it has a pilot, it looks like a helicopter, and you lay in your aircraft systems, how can those aircraft systems start to walk up towards that more autonomous behavior, that human-machine collaboration that we talked about? And, um, and so you see a progression. Well, sensor suites and comm suites, Maybe those are the first to go. You can, you can start to automate those a little bit. And then how about next command and perception? Can we give it a set of instructions that guide its decision so it can make command decisions without uh, interaction uh, back at the base? And then more um, advanced AI techniques of behavioral autonomy and then collaboration between some machines that may not have that capability and some that do. Um, this behavioral driven approach, it, it makes you ask questions about what you mean and also how you might set that up uh, as, as a, a, at a foundational level. And so when we ask ourselves what it meant, when you want to walk away from automation and even walk away from autonomy and get to that adaptive autonomy to really have a differentiated product. But what you have to do with it first is set up certain taxonomies, taxonomies and, and uh, ontologies that are baseline potential actions for an aircraft. So every aircraft has to pitch, roll, and yaw. Well, if you set up an ontology of pitch, roll, and yaw is uh, hanging on my tree and I need to do these three things to enact those, those control directions and feed the, the uh, aircraft-specific control laws into that taxonomy, uh, taxonomy and the ontology, then you can uh, get to more dynamic behaviors because there's just a baseline set of, of actions that can take place across all the different vehicles. And then just in closing, you know, we, we think the, the genie's out of the bottle on, the, on uh, automation. I think that's evident in Richard's comments as well. It's really hard to keep up in this area and you have to dedicate a team to it. And then we know that the autonomy in AI is about taking over mundane tasks, certainly in the beginning, and can, if it can go beyond that, we'd like it to. And we look at fly-by-wire that way, get rid of those dumb, dangerous, dirty, and dull tasks, and make the pilot into a mission specialist and a safety specialist. We think uh, one of the areas that's going to be really important is we need a lot of bandwidth, because this is a lot of data exchange, and that data has to be safe, so encryption along with it. And then we do a lot of thinking, and that's a picture from our family day, about future aviators. Yeah, I, I tease my friends at Textron Systems. Every time I go to their office, they have an Xbox controller in front of one of their uh, machines. And I say, what, you guys messing around again and playing games? And they say, no, that's, that's the controller. Because the remote pilots that run the Shadow and, and the rest of these unmanned vehicles, they grew up with Xbox controllers and PlayStation controllers, and that's what they hand them to do this today. So who are those real future aviators? Are they ground-based like we're kind of familiar today? Are they folks that get in an urban air taxi and have maybe one, two, or three decisions that they can make? Where do you want to go? 
if the red lights start flashing, what would you do? Um, or do they just sit back and, and enjoy the experience? So a lot of uh, interest from our side on, on who those, those folks look like. We know that's changed uh, even today. There's more wings being handed out for unmanned pilots than there are for traditional pilots. And uh, then our, our closing slide here is just our, our traditional sneak peek at the urban, urban air taxi. And uh, I'll take any questions when we get to the panel. Thank you. What Scott said was dead on with the innovation. We are tackling all of this every day. And that can either make your head hurt or it just gets you ready to you want to come to work the next day because it, it's absolutely exciting. And what I'm going to do is bring you back to today and where we, he tells about where we want to be in the future. I'm going to talk about where we are today. And it's interesting. What you'll hear a lot around UAV guys is the three Ds, the dull, the dirty, the dangerous, because that's what we want the unmanned vehicles to do. And I'm very careful about always using the phrase unmanned vehicles, because drones to most Americans are either spies or killers. And you're going to find that unmanned vehicles have an awful lot of impact on our daily life already. And we're getting more involved with humanitarian things. Here are some of today's challenges. And we're going to just start with the unmanned KMAX is a Part 27 certified aircraft with the FAA back in 1994. And what we did is it's an optionally piloted capability. And that's done a couple of things for us. One, we can have the pilot hop out. But more importantly, during the development, we had a pilot in the cockpit at all times, and we were able to do all of our unmanned testing in the national airspace. Because the FAA said, as long as there's a pilot in there who can take control at any time, it's a manned aircraft. So by being optionally piloted, we didn't have to go to a test range, and we were able to do probably four years of testing and development in a, in a year. Missile Technology Control Regime. Kind of a neat sentence. The KMAX, as you can see, is a helicopter, but it's also in Category 1 of the MTCR. That means it's an intercontinental ballistic missile to the State Department. So you can imagine the challenges I have trying to export a helicopter that's in that regime. It's because it's completely autonomous, it has a minimum payload, and it has a minimum range. So I can't export it today even if I wanted to. ITAR, the same kind of challenges of trying to take this nice helicopter and export it, and there's a bunch of regulations that we have to overcome. And that's what's happening today. I'll tell you on the MTCR, we're looking at having people in the State Department add a fourth requirement, and that is a minimum airspeed. Because most helicopters will drop right out of Category 1 if we can do that. The other thing that's happening is the per current administration is looking at just changing policy, realizing that helicopters are not intercontinental ballistic missiles, and try to shorten the path for export. Those are some of today's real live challenges. Technology, as I said, FAA Part 27, 
unmanned logistics capability. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Detect, sense, and avoid. How can we understand what's going on in the airspace around us when we don't have a pilot on board? ADSB in and out is really good if there's somebody up in the air looking at that. There's a bunch of bolt-on systems, and boy, did Scott hit it on the head. Bandwidth. All of these UAS are going to be able to communicate at exponential levels of what they're communicating today. And so there's got to be an infrastructure for that bandwidth. Here's what we did in Afghanistan with our partner Lockheed Martin. Our goal going into Afghanistan was to take trucks off the road. In Afghanistan, a road is a basic mule path that maybe they put in two tire ruts. It's not a road by any stretch of the imagination. What we did is we moved four and a half million pounds in three and a half years. And this was not sexy stuff. It was water. It was food. It was ammunition. Sometimes we took it from a main operating base to a forward operating base or to a combat outpost or just to a GPS waypoint in the middle of nowhere where somebody else is going to go catch up to it. It is a typically dull mission. Now, we did have a couple of missions where we had armed helicopter escorts because what we were carrying at that time, they really wanted us to get there. They didn't want any challenges. Those are going to happen. But moving the trucks off the road, one of the two key statistics is this one. We removed 900 convoy vehicles off the road. And those are the trucks carrying stuff. That doesn't include the self-defense vehicles at the front of the convoy, the self-defense vehicles at the end of the convoy, or sometimes there's air assets to protect those convoys. It got to the point where all the guys driving trucks said, why send us, send them. And they wanted that, meaning the KMAX. We had a contractual requirement to move 30,000 pounds a week. After about day 50, we were moving 30,000 pounds a night. And what that meant was getting trucks off the road. The other part was this contact hours. A contact hour is any time a soldier had the possibility of being hurt. We removed 46,000 contact hours. That's not my statistic. That's the Marine Corps statistic. That's what the Marine Corps wanted. And I'll tell you, we, we had a lot of fun doing this. It was a Marine Corps owned the aircraft. We had a uh, commercial team over there running it. And it was just great synergy for three and a half years. The Marines came home, the aircraft came home, and almost three years later, we still don't know where the program is going. That's mostly because of Washington, D.C. and budgets. But it's a fact of life that there are UAS out there today that can do things. Acceptance. UAS have got to be accepted by business leaders. I'll tell you, we've been having conversations with the oil and gas industry, and they have come to the realization that oil is not going much above $50 a barrel for many, many years. So they're rethinking how they do everything and how they can be smarter. And one of their biggest focus is safety. It's hard for me to fathom sometimes as they're driving trucks in North Dakota that they have a safety problem with drivers driving off the road. 
I, I, I don't understand it. There's fatigue, there's there are temporary roads, there's all this neat thing, but they want to change that. They want to go to autonomous trucks wherever they can. They want to go to autonomous logistics wherever they can. So those business leaders get it. They know they have to change. They're ready. Government agencies, they're coming along slowly. They don't have any budget to do things because they don't have a line item that says unmanned vehicle for no matter whatever department they're in. Helicopter operators. There's got to have to be some acceptance there because autonomy and, and autonomous systems are coming. It's not taking pilots out completely. One of the things that we are chasing with our partner Lockheed Martin is unmanned firefighting by flying at night when manned aviation isn't flying. The unmanned helicopter of today can't keep up with a human and do the things that a human can do. As Scott was talking about, when you get to the AI portion in the future, it'll be able to. But right now, we just want to be able to assist the wildfires, save tax dollars by fighting a fire 24 hours a day instead of 8 to 12. And of course, the general public, as I said earlier, drones are either spying on me or they're shooting at me. So it's got it. We've we as an industry have to be very careful about the words we use to describe autonomous technologies. As I talked in, in a number of forums, I'm a big fan of autonomous systems, autonomous flying systems. I've been in this business, I've been in helicopters for over 40 years, but autonomy for nearly 20. I'm not getting on an airplane without a pilot. I want somebody with me that has the same risk. I don't want the guy on the ground to say, yeah, sorry, button pushed, you're done. My children and my grandkids, they're going to be flying on those things all the time. Because it's going to be a culture shift. There's going to be acceptance by that generation that I have a lot of faith, but I'm not there yet. How do we get that acceptance? Well, like we sh I just showed you in Afghanistan, we've had some proven capability. We're, we demonstrated that. We have real-life situations where we showed where an autonomous system can work. Since the FAA approved the 55-pound and under UAS, there's becoming much more acceptance when you can go to Houston, Miami, Puerto Rico, and assess damage, help with the rescue efforts with an unmanned system. Those are the things that are going to gain us acceptance and, of course, education and training of operators. Very basic stuff, but it's all got to happen. The business case. We're not here to be friends. We're here to make money. We all want to do that. We want to do the right thing, but there's got to be an opportunity to make money. And so what does the business case have to do? Well, obviously, we're not going to take every single job in the world. But I know for a fact there isn't a helicopter, alive, helicopter pilot alive today that gets excited about flying water all day. Perfect job for an unmanned aircraft. Dirty. I go back to the 1980s and Chernobyl. All those helicopter pilots who were putting concrete on that nuclear reactor are dead. If you had unmanned aviation back then, they wouldn't be. We were asked to go over to Fukushima with our unmanned asset to pretty much do the same thing. And then the lawyers got involved. And it had to do with liability and ownership. And Needless to say, it didn't happen, but that is another, a perfect mission 
for an autonomous system. I hope it doesn't happen again, but we know that the unmanned systems are perfect for that. And the dangerous, well, all, all day long, humanitarian missions, you know, being able to fly an unmanned aircraft minutes after it's safe to go into a danger zone. Whether it's an Ebola crisis in Africa, it's a natural disaster in Puerto Rico, to be able to have an unmanned aircraft get in there before it's actually manned aviation really wants to fly in those situations. The business case has got to make sense. It's got to be a value add. In Puerto Rico, the value add is to that person on the ground that two weeks later doesn't have any water, doesn't have any electricity. Lots of stuff at the ports, can't get it inland. It's got to be faster, it's got to be safer, it's got to be more efficient, it's got to be more effective. This whole autonomy game is going to change how we do business and it's going to change how everybody does business. Whether it's a self-driving car, it's a helicopter that delivers stuff, it's an aircraft like FedEx that doesn't have a pilot on board as they're doing their cargo runs every night and landing at your local airport. It's going to affect everybody. That's what's happening today. Scott talked about what's coming, and that, my God, is exciting. That is extremely exciting. And now, what we're gonna be doing for the next 15 years is going from my today thing to his tomorrow thing. And I'll be happy to take any questions along with Scott. Thank you. Very, very relevant. Uh, perception, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that governments have. There's uh, an effort by the UK government ongoing at the moment to sort of um, hold a series of, 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 of sort of chats with the general public about the use of unmanned technology in the civil space. Um, generally, it's a mixed bag, but there are some very, very, very negative comments, particularly with regard to spying and privacy. Uh, so I think part of the role for industry and the media, I think, possibly, is to better articulate the benefits uh, rather than concentrating on the, the negatives. Uh, yeah, cool. Okay, so we'll, we'll move on to the Q&A. Uh, we've got about uh, 25, 30 minutes, so if anyone's got something pressing, uh, if you could just put your hand up and we'll bring the mic over to you. I can kick the ball off if that's all right. Um, talking about perception, I think, what, what role do you think industry has in telling the general public, not customers, but telling the general public uh, what your systems do, the benefits and the capabilities that are on offer. Um, yeah, I think we have a, a very important role. Uh, our most prevalent one right now is in the for the innovation team is in the urban air taxi space. We need to start to communicate one that we are part of the community, so we're not as noisy as you think. Uh, and we're going to be uh, quieter with the new vehicles, whether it's through electric propulsion or slower tip speeds or other technologies that we add in there. Uh, I think um, Terry added that you, you've got, when you look left getting into the, into the aircraft uh, coming from Dallas to, to London today, you want to see someone there, and we have to walk our customers or potential customers towards a future that, yes, our children will be more accustomed to sort of naturally because of the way they're involved with technology, but we need um, some of that to happen re regardless, even for the folks that are going to be uh, nervous about uh, 
that proposition. I, you know, we can start to talk a lot about how, uh, without negatively affecting what's going on today, where crashes occur, when do they occur, how are they caused, is it, is it workload? And, and it turns out that a lot of times it is. How can we relieve that workload? So I think that, that part uh, from the autonomy standpoint is really important. I also think it's about finding those first customers and giving them some demonstrations. You mentioned demonstrations, Terry, and I, I take um, my partners in the urban air taxi uh, area on demonstrations, but that's like preaching to the choir. We're all just sitting there giddy like, hey, we just flew from DFW to Frisco in in eight minutes in a 429. Oh, it's going to be great when we make our urban air taxi vehicle, but that doesn't mean that the person on the ground understands how that feels. And I think that's where a lot of advocacy could come from. If you start to get, um, let, let's just call them civilians, into these aircraft or similar type aircraft and let them experience what it means to not be in traffic for one hour uh, and, and be at home with your family in eight minutes instead, uh, they could become our greatest champions just right off the bat. And Scott is right. The, the change is going to happen, and it's going to happen gradually. I don't know about who else in this room has to go grab a teenager to help them with their laptop problem or how to figure out the, all the remote control functions for your television set. There's a, there's a cultural thing. There's an, uh, a generational thing that's really going to change. And we in the industry have to lead the way in the training and the acceptance from the point of view of getting people out there to use the equipment properly, use it in the right fashion, and get get those champions on your side early. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you who those champions are today because I don't know. It could be anybody. But once the champions get out there and they start talking about the system or the way of the future and how UAS can affect you, that's really the key, and it's whether it's demonstrations or it's a Google car being seen in your neighborhood, operating properly. Those are all the things. People want to see it. They really want to see things operate, and I think that's really going to be the key. If I can just ask another quick question. Um, you talked about the, uh, the bandwidth issues. Is this a limiting factor in what you can do and can't do with both your platforms? Well, uh, let me start. The easy answer is yes. Uh, if you're... Fly, flying a UAS and you're bouncing sa satellite signals beyond line of sight and you're using a commercial system today, it, it's a real challenge because there just isn't enough bandwidth up there. And oh, by the way, if you want to control that aircraft, that's great, but then you want to send down high-definition video of what you're flying over, now you've really got some challenges because those systems exist today. You can do high bandwidth, high definition video beyond line of sight. But it's not everybody can do it at the same time. And it's, it's like the Wi-Fi in hotels has gotten so much better in the last seven years. That's what's going to have to happen to bandwidth overall for UAS, unmanned via ground vehicles, and even unmanned surface vehicles on the oceans to be able to work properly. Yeah, I think, I think it'll definitely be a challenge. The, the FCC's already presented some challenges on, on different frequencies that are available or not available. Um, bandwidth in terms of volume of data, but also latency. Um, this is, it's one thing to, 
to have a latency problem with your Google search because you're looking for your, your new pair of sneakers. It's another thing to have a latency problem in a, in a vehicle that you're, you're depending on for your life. So I think it also it, it comes into two major categories. Uh, Terry is alluding to them, safety first, because um, it can affect that. You don't want any data link issues, bandwidth latency or otherwise, to affect the safety of the occupants of the vehicle or those below it. And then um, second is, is you got to get up and do your work. I mean, those amazing numbers over in Afghanistan of what the KMAX is doing, um, that's about getting up and going to work every day. So you can't have uh, data link issues or bandwidth issues that stop these vehicles from going out and, and making money because they, they need to operate um, consistently to be competitive with things like autonomous trucks and, and um, logistic systems that we currently have. Any questions on the floor? Sure. If you could uh, just give oh, your name and uh, sure. job title as well, please. Uh, Warren Willis from Just Our Partners. I'm curious about this. Uh, is it only satellite capability, or, or is there ground-based systems, uh, or any concept of ground-based systems? I know over water it would be difficult, but you could actually put buoys out and things of that nature. Is, it, is there any way to kind of modify it so it, it isn't truly satellite and limitations on satellite requirements? There are, um, we're looking uh, and, and very interested in the Wi-Fi um, system as well, so ground-based towers or buoys as you said, and I think that's very promising, especially as we head towards 5G. Those will be critical. Any communication link anywhere is going to be critical because there's going to have to be backups to whether you're using the, the satellite, you're going to have to come to the ground or vice versa. Satellite is, you know, is limited as far as availability and also expensive. So those combinations really make it very difficult to make it a viable business opportunity. At least my thought process. Uh, the other question I've got also is, is um, uh, you know, you're talking about urban environment situations. Do you think though it, that it really would should be remote locations first to kind of you know, proof of concept and, and making sure that you really have that capability to show the the, the, the people that it is a viable technology and it's used for. Uh, again, firefighting or whatever it is to begin with is, is a primary focus and then ultimately bring it over to urban uh, because urban itself is going to be a difficult situation because people emotionally react and then you get politicians to react yes. <laughs> and they say, right, right, legislation. And that's the battle you've got right there. So. Yeah, uh, great points. We, in fact, if you, if you look at some of my flight test programs right now on some of our subscale models, we are operating remotely trying to accumulate hours and experience about failure modes and so forth. And I do think um, there is value in initial demonstrations taking place in more remote areas uh, to at least get uh, get people that, you know comfortable with the idea that they may be in a city near you very soon. The, the, the first vehicles that'll come out in this urban environment will operate under experimental airworthiness tickets. Um, that doesn't uh, usually involve customers until a certain level of maturity gets put in place. So you'd be looking at um, pilots first, professional pilots who are accustomed to these types of aircraft. But I think what your point is, in an urban environment, there's a lot of people underneath. There's, there's physical infrastructure that is, is valuable. Uh, so how, how do we do those things? We've been also, if you look at some of the first routes we're picking out, so that DFW to Frisco route, there is the opportunity to get in a corridor that's a little less densely populated there and come into the two bird ports. Yeah, you'll find that when an unmanned vehicle goes from point A to point B, it is not a straight line. We plug in the GPS waypoints to not overfly anything worthwhile. 
One one advocacy thing you reminded me of talking about the politicians. I was telling the story uh, to someone on the way over. We have um, occasionally we have a noise complaint uh, with our training facility, and it's from the residents around the factory. And you come to find out when you really dig into it that there are very few people that have a lot of energy and make a lot of complaints rather than a big group of folks that make um, uh, complaints that, that accumulate together. So I think um, that advocacy piece can, can help there to, you know, you, you don't, it's, it's not a huge burden to get after five people and just talk to them about what it is they were experiencing and how we might be able to change it in the future. Yeah, go for it. A <laughs> uh, couple things. Actually, I, I'm an old Douglas Aircraft guy, and uh, we actually used uh, uh, inducted fan technology back in the 80s, and uh, we were actually doing demonstration flights and ran into the politics uh, issue right away when we started doing demonstration flights in internal locations. And the politicians started actually starting and drafting legislation almost immediately as soon as we landed uh, because they didn't understand it, they, they didn't appreciate it, and they just knew that there was a way to get buzz going out for their own personal benefits and that. So that's a, just a side note, but that's... Uh, yeah, something that you might want to take into consideration. Sure. Yeah. The other thing that I'm curious about is, are you watching Amazon and others, DHL and others, for their unmanned delivery processes and how they're going to be perceived in the marketplace and what they're doing? Because they're going to be the first guys out, out uh, running over urban environments with uh, unmanned e equipment, with you know, uh, payloads in some fashion. Uh, are, you, are you involved with them at all, or are you looking at that at all? It's, it's interesting, uh, UPS is already using them, and they, what they do is they launch their UAS in rural communities from, from a truck, and they make 10 or 15 deliveries without moving the truck. They just use the UAS to take the small packages. So there's acceptance out there. There's other challenges with the acceptance all throughout. And I'll tell you, as we all know, Amazon is rewriting so many rules that couldn't be broken and they're doing it almost on a weekly basis. So they are truly a game changer in all of the industries. And who would have thought three years ago that they'd be a game changer in aviation with unmanned systems? They are going to help. They are really going to help get the acceptance. And when the people are happy with having a small package delivered to their porch with a little UAS, then they'll say, well, maybe it can be a driverless car, and then maybe it can be a pilotless aircraft. And once, they get, once we get comfortable with the technology, and I, of course I've been around a lot of years where we try to get comfortable with microwave oven technology, and we try to do the new TV technology. I have lots of war stories about those things and getting messed up. But it's, it's generational, and what's going to happen is our grandkids today and our children, young children today they're just going to look at you and say, Grandpa, what was the big problem? <laughs> because they're going to start with that. They're starting with phones that have more computing power than the computers that landed men on the moon back in the 60s. So for them, it's a different starting point. And I think that's really critical to this whole development. We are, we are looking in those areas. Um, uh, call it logistics or delivery services. Bell um, tends to go larger. So I think our first uh, effort in that would be distribution center to distribution center. So let's move a thousand pounds for uh, an Amazon, uh, a, a retail center, or a logistics um, delivery service. Let's move two thousand pounds, and we 
you know, I have subscale vehicles right now that can do those little missions, uh, but we're using them more for understanding novel configurations and flight control uh, laws for for those novel configurations. So I think we'd be in the in the larger end first from a Bell standpoint, and then you know, as as necessary, you know, go go small. But uh, Terry and I were talking earlier; those small ones are commodities. They're very hard for for companies, large com manufacturing companies like ours, to to have a sensible business case behind them. But it doesn't mean our engineers don't come up with really neat configurations that some of the others lack, um, and, and we could could offer that as intellectual property, maybe, perhaps. Well, they're first to market is, I guess, my thought process. Mm -hmm. So they're going to experience both the positive and the negative right away. And, and you're going to be, uh, hopefully, get a benefit from that whole situation. And, and maybe if, you know, and again, my, my, I guess my question is, is there, I guess I don't know this, but is there an industry association for UAS or all of you guys are talking together and that kind of stuff? Because that's where you're going to have to hit it because, you know, uh, Bell or, or Cayman by themselves, you don't have the power enough to basically go into every place known to man, but an association might be able to start hitting them heavily, and Amazon could be part of that whole process, well, I guess that, is my thought. For at least 70 years that I'm aware of, the Association of Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, since basically World War II when we were flying unmanned bombers, has been around, and they are a very, very strong group yep. in Washington, D.C., and the UAS regulations that are on the books in the FAA right now were written by AUVSI and accepted by the FAA. So we do have a very strong group for the unmanned vehicles, and that's all unmanned vehicles, not just air. It's subsurface, surface, ground, and air. And they're a great organization, and they put on a great conference every year, normally in the spring, and you go into that conference and there's a hall full of people with just unbelievably smart people with great ideas and very little funding. So they're coming out, they're going into that show and they're, they're selling their homes and everything for this one shot and they're looking for that right uh, banker, venture capitalist to come in and say, I agree, that's a great idea. And in that show every year, it, it'll make your head hurt with all the technology. It's just a lot of fun. So we do have that type of a voice on our side yep. in Washington. Yeah, it's a great group. Uh, when you drop down to the system level, we also have other groups. So like Gamma is another lobby group that we, we'll, we'll go uh, with Gamma to talk about um, propulsion systems or talk about regulations for autonomy or talk about landing systems or ducted fan systems. So GAMMA is another good organization at the, I'll call it the system system level. But AUVSI is great, a wonderful show as well. Uh, if I can just jump in here um, to talk a little bit about, I guess, the market, uh, particularly with regards to the things you mentioned about AUVSI and the number of different platforms and systems and use cases that are being showcased. Is the market big enough to accommodate the number of people that want to enter it? Will there need to be a period of consolidation, both in platforms and use cases? Well, I would go back to the history books and look at it, how many car manufacturers there were in the teens and 20s. There was gazillions of them, and now how many do we have? Same thing's going to happen in UAS. There will be some market consolidation, and it's, it's the guys who can be the most efficient in the business world, buying up the technologies or developing themselves. It's always cheaper to buy it, I guess, but it's it's a challenge. But yes, there will be consolidation because the those 55 pound and under guys is a commodity. You can't make any money doing that stuff, whether you put an, an eighth rotor on it or a ninth rotor or go down to three. They can all do the same thing. 
what, what's a differentiator is who makes the system that goes on that UAS, whether it's a sensor uh, to, for air quality or a really great camera for inspecting oil pipes or power lines. It's the systems that go on the air vehicle. Much like any helicopter in the military, it's just a truck to take the systems, the sensor someplace. And the same thing's going to happen with the smaller UAS and UAS in general. I think there'll be a, a U.S. too about configuration consolidation. I think that'll happen as well. I sat in a, uh, on a panel <clears throat> last week with um, SAE and um, Dan Newman from Boeing did a neat presentation on the bicycle um, 100 years ago and, and the different designs that were out there for it. And now you have a consolidated configuration with some stragglers. Helicopters, same way. Airplane, same way. So I think there will be a consolidation of configuration as well. And I do find it interesting to think about the this this notion of the truck. You know, I, I'm an aerospace engineer by by education, and you know, you have all these proud moments of these wonderful vehicles that you that you build through your career. But it's really now about what's inside of them. It really is. I mean, these these become call them bags or crates uh, or or trucks to carry around the artificial intelligence that I talked about or the sensors, that's really going to be the key. And yes, you're going to still need the, the best vehicle to carry it around in, but it's the inside that matter. Any questions? <clears throat> yep. Hi, my name is Pulkit Sharma. I'm from Babcock International. And I promised myself I wouldn't do this, but given that I have you right here, Scott. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How far is the air taxi from being a commercial reality? So uh, when, <clears throat> when Uber talks about it, uh, we talk about a timeline of a 2020-2021 demo and a 2023 certification of, of various vehicles that, that they can start to enter service. You don't start to see um, multiple cities in the you know, uh, dozens plus then you know, hundreds or even thousands of aircraft until the you know, 26, 27, you know, maybe even 2030 period. But, um, we are being challenged to make those initial dates, and um, we're, I think we're up for the challenge, but uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, again, from me, if I can, unmanned technology has primarily been a, a capability used by militaries for a lot of decades and decades. What sort of, um, if I can ask, what sort of quantitative attention are you paying on the commercial possibilities? Have you got a percentage set aside that will say Baylor Command will put 20% into commercial activities up until say 2020-2030? I'll tell you that our focus uh, along with our partner Lockheed Martin is on the commercial industry for the unmanned KMAX. It's a niche player in all helicopters. It doesn't, it doesn't carry any passengers. It's got a single pilot and a cargo hook and we've determined that we don't even need the pilot anymore. But it's for commercial, and we want a commercial system that's readily exportable. We want a commercially competitive price that makes the business case make sense. And oh, by the way, if it makes sense in the commercial world, the military is going to buy it anyways and just put their sensors on it. Yeah, I think, uh, so if you look at Bell overall, and I, this is across unmanned and manned platforms, we're usually... Uh, 60 to 70 percent military and, and 30 to 40 percent uh, um, commercial depending on where we are in the cycle. My team uh, in particular which focuses a lot on unmanned is probably 50-50 right now. I have two 
major commercial projects, the urban air taxi and unmanned logistics, uh, and then um, a couple uh, military projects as well. That unmanned logistics project can span both uh, both military and commercial, and that's the neat part about what what Terry's talking about. You can you can get a lot of customers if you think about the Army CASCOM mission and then a mission of a, a major uh, worldwide retailer or delivery service, uh, that, that uh, unmanned logistics space from small to very large things uh, like Terry's uh, equipment delivers is, is a really promising space. Just a final question for me if I can. It's pretty simple. Is legislation, lack of it, what you will, is it holding you back in terms of business development, future opportunities? So it's always uh, it's easy it's always easy to go after uh, the FAA uh, um, and we are partners with the FAA and we believe we have to be early on in these new uh, ventures, particularly with autonomy, new propulsion systems, uh, and, and, and the like. Um, they have taken some really interesting steps. Part twenty three, which is the um, usually used for general aviation aircraft certification, is now a performance based standard. Uh, that we have recently done an exercise with on a previous powered lift aircraft that we used. And that first certification basis 20 years ago had one paragraph from Part 23. When we redid it, it now has 80% of its paragraphs from Part 23. So I think that's encouraging. The FAA is also going through a major reorg that's centered, focused on um, innovation and less prescriptive regulation. So I think that's promising. Um, when, the, when it comes to signing on the line for a type uh, certificate, there are methods of compliance that are gonna matter more than what you wrote down in your certification basis or your approach. So I think that's where the rubber really hits the road. But the answer to that problem isn't to just constantly complain about how they're a burden to us, but to partner with them early on and understand these new technologies now so that you're not just throwing them at them at the, at the last minute trying to get your certificate. Scott is dead on with that. We have partnered with the FAA on the unmanned KMAX from the very first day because even though we're an experimental category and we're optionally piloted, we have a safety questionnaire that whenever we change software or we add systems, we have to go through the entire mini certification process for our aircraft. And so they're very familiar with it. We're very happy with our relationship with the FAA. They have a big job to do. I mean, they really do. And the number one priority was to do the 55-pound and under guys because there's a heck of a lot more of those than Scott and I will ever dream of making at our companies. So that was a, that was a requirement. The other thing that's really neat about the FAA is they're opening up from a point. It's generational with them, too. Their people, their engineers are younger. They are, have gone to school and their mandatory classes were UAS, where their predecessors is just very new. So you're starting with people at the FAA who understand the technology to begin with, and they also understand where it's going. So they are looking for partnerships. They're looking to be part of the plan. They want to be able to guide the plan to certification. Yeah. I think we have a, we have a OEMs have a responsibility, and, and we, we have to be careful about how cocky we get in this environment because there are a lot of great startups coming up. But um, we do have a responsibility from our uh, historical experience 
to, to help in some of these areas. I've got a, a quick little good, good story about that. The FAA has been faced with a lot of folks that never made aircraft before. Suddenly Amazon's at your door, suddenly Uber's at your door, and they're, they're sitting there going, well, you know, this isn't really how it works. Usually a, an aircraft manufacturer comes to us and tells us we're about to kick off a project and then we light a project up and, and assign resources to it. So we went one day with one of our potential uh, partners and suddenly a lot more specialists showed up at the meeting. A lot more of the leaders showed up at the meeting because now Bell was coming in or, or Cayman was coming in or Boeing or Airbus and and uh, that that helps the industry and I think um, we need to do that because the potential that's here can go away very quickly if we don't do things safely and uh, and then we won't have conversations like this anymore because that that so-called rotten apple will spoil the spoil the bunch gentlemen thank you any extra questions from the floor nothing okay well ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for your time in joining us for the two presentations and the Q&A afterwards. If you can just join your hands together and thank uh, Terry and Scott. Thank you very much.